Thanks, Rosie. It's really kind. <laughs> it's so good to be at the morning meeting. I've not been for a very long time. And me and JP were just joking that people will know me as the, the guy in the corner on that welcome screen that's up every week. Um, so that might be how you know me. But if you don't, my name is Callum. I'm part of the evening meeting here at Grace Church. I lead a home group with my good friend Ashley, who's not here this morning. She's just on her way back from the USA and should probably be having a good rest. I wonder what you think of when I say the word rest. Maybe you think of going to bed at night and actually that hour that you lost last night, you're really feeling it already. And the reason you come in the morning is because, well, you need an early night tonight to get your beauty sleep ahead of work tomorrow. Or maybe you think of 4.59 in the office on a Friday. You've been doing all of those little jobs that you don't really need to do, but you do to waste time before you go home. So you put your mug in the dishwasher. Maybe you go to the bathroom because you don't want to need it on the way home. Um, I do a job which I've sort of taken upon myself, which is to put all the spoons that everyone puts in the sink in the dishwasher. I, I once asked recently, I was like, when I'm working from home, who does that? And they all look blankly at each other. Um, then what happens, our office is just off Market Square and the bells start to ring. And one of my colleagues always says, is that a bing-bong, bing-bong time? And we're like, yeah, yeah, I think it is. And we close down our computers, we'll go home, or we'll go off out into town to enjoy the weekend. Or maybe, and you have to indulge me on this one, I studied music at uni, and sometimes we'd find myself playing in an orchestra, and you'd be playing along, and suddenly come across this empty bar, which would have like the number 100 over it, and you think, oh my goodness, I've got to count to four a hundred times. And so you start counting and counting and thinking about what you want for dinner and what you're going to do tomorrow. Then you realize you've lost count. And actually, it's fine because you remember the trombones come in just before you. So then you come in then. <laughs> These examples are all different, but they have something in common. They all involve ceasing from doing something, ceasing from working. And the Hebrew word that means to cease from work gets introduced to us at the very beginning of the Bible. After six days of creation, God rested on the seventh day. He ceased from working. And the word that's used is Shabbat, from which we then get the word Sabbath. And the theme of Sabbath, of seventh-day rest, is then picked up throughout the pages of the Old Testament. So I thought it'd be fun to just do a quick whistle-stop tour. In the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, the fourth commandment tells us to remember the Sabbath day. On it you shall not do any work. Just as God rested on the seventh day, you, your family, your servants, your animals, and anyone else who lives with you is to rest too. This then gets picked up in the law given by Moses. In Leviticus, we see seven feasts throughout the year, then a Sabbath year every seventh year in which Israel was to rest from working. And then every seven times seven years, there's a year of jubilee when all debts will be cleared and property returned to their original owners. This theme of rest and Sabbath then gets picked up as Israel enters into the land promised to them, and then again in their subsequent exile to Assyria and Babylon, where the prophets spoke of a coming jubilee in which there would be complete rest for the people of God. Then following their eventual physical return to the land, the people still kind of felt like they were in exile, like they were away from home despite being geographically present. And it is into this setting that Jesus comes and announces his ministry with a reading from the prophets and a declaration that the year of the Lord's favor, the ultimate jubilee, is fulfilled in himself. So this morning we're continuing our series in the book of Matthew. 
So if you've got a Bible, if you'd like to turn with me to the beginning of Matthew chapter 12, uh, we'll be reading the first eight verses, and the words should come up on the screen. I'm reading from the ESV. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the present, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Here we see Jesus challenged by some of the religious leaders at the time, a group called the Pharisees who were devoted to keeping the law of Moses to the letter. And they challenge him on the behavior of his disciples. It's a challenge to his authority as the one the disciples follow and their accusation is one of breaking the Sabbath. The disciples are hungry, so they start to pluck heads of grain and eat them. And this, is, this counts to the Pharisees as reaping, which is one of the 39 areas of work they did not allow on the Sabbath day. But Jesus counters them with two references to their history and their practices. Firstly, he mentions David, how in his time of need, when he was running for his life, he ate the bread of the present which was meant for the priests only. And then secondly, he mentions the priests in the temple and how they break the Sabbath every week by offering sacrifices on the Sabbath day. Why does he use these examples? I think it would be a bit strange if you accused me of doing something and I started telling you stories about my great-great-grandfather. <laughs> what he's not doing here is saying that these circumstances with his disciples are exactly the same as those of David or the priests. Instead, he's appealing to his own authority. He refers to David to show that one greater than David is here. And he refers to the temple to show that something greater than the temple is here, namely himself, the ultimate priest king. Here, Jesus counters the Pharisees with a declaration that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And he quotes the prophet Hosea to show them that they need to get their priorities in order. God's heart is for mercy not empty ritual, void of devotion. And the Pharisees have turned what was meant for good into an unnecessary burden. Now, the question of Christian Sabbath observance is a, a bit of a hot topic. And if you're hoping that I'll provide you with a set of instructions this morning, I'm afraid you'll be disappointed. The Apostle Paul says this about the Sabbath day in Colossians chapter 2. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. Strict Sabbath observance is not a rule for Christians. But that's not to say there's nothing at all to be learned from it. As we've seen with the Pharisees, our attitude towards rest can reveal a lot about our hearts and what we think about God. Are you able to stop? Are you able to acknowledge that you are a limited person and that only God is unlimited. You know, when we really pause to think about our sin, 
we can often see ourselves trying to become God ourselves, to fight our limitations instead of embracing them. The man who is unable to rest and stop from his work is in effect saying that he is self-sufficient, that he does not need or depend on God. I love this quote from the Bible teacher, Jem Wilkin. She says, an inability or unwillingness to cease from labors is a confession of unbelief, an admission that we view ourselves as creator and sustainer of our own universes. What a challenge that is to us today. When you go to sleep tonight, are you able to rest from everything you have to do this coming week? When you get on the bus home from work this Friday, are you able to leave your work in the office? When you get on the train for the coming uni holidays, can you keep your laptop closed for just a few hours and take a break? Are you able to stop from your productivity and enjoy the regular rhythm of inconvenient disruption that reminds us who really is God? Have you ever really stopped and thought about this? I was um, first introduced to taking a day off a week uh, by my housemate Ben back when we were students in our final year. Uh, we didn't live together at the time, but I remember he was round. He was always round. And, um, <laughs> and he said, uh, he said oh, I don't do any uni work on Saturdays. And I thought, I don't want to do any uni work on Saturdays. So I started doing the same. Um, and then it sort of developed from there as my circumstances changed after uni. These days, I don't work on Saturdays, but I still practice this regular rhythm of rest. And I think for those of us who do practice this, there's a different challenge for us. Note that the Sabbath commandment in Exodus was not just to individuals, but to whole communities. Both servants and foreigners find themselves blessed on the Sabbath day. I know that my tendency is to make my day of rest all about me. It's my time to look after myself and not think of others, to go to my favorite cafe, to watch my favorite football team, to eat my favorite food. And that's not to say that looking after yourself is a bad thing, and far from it. And sometimes some of us just need a bit of a break from lots of social interaction. But there is a challenge here to extend mercy to those in need, true Sabbath rest and jubilee to the poor. As we saw throughout our series last year in the book of Amos, God cares about our hearts. His mercy triumphs over judgment. Let us be the same and not neglect the needy for the sake of our own comfort. And Jesus models this himself in the passage straight after this. He heals a man's hand on the Sabbath day and does similar miracles on other occasions throughout the Gospels. Now, just as a, a little aside, when I was preparing for this, I was largely expecting to speak to young adults. And I just had this thought that everyone's going to be like, well, Callum, how can you say this to me? You're a single young man, but I've got small children. I've got elderly parents to look after. I can't do this. This isn't practical. But I think the principle remains that you aren't God, that you are limited, just as I'm limited. And we can all take a step in this today. And that's the question is, what's the step that you can take in reminding yourself that you aren't God. Now, I'd really love to share with you a secret about myself. I really love wearing my glasses. <laughs> I started wearing glasses about a month after my first birthday, um, and I can't remember a time not wearing them. Because I was, uh, they actually were like noddy glasses, if 
people know Noddy. They probably will in this meeting, actually. Um, so, uh, because I was um, so young when I started wearing them, I can't remember a time not wearing them. And I find it really weird that a lot of people just get up in the morning without glasses on and go about their day. It's really strange. Um, I feel uncomfortable without them on. And sometimes when I see myself in the mirror when I'm not wearing them, I think like, Cow, is that what you really look like? Um, <laughs> there's this one time when I was a student, I was at home group and I was being prayed for by a friend and he started just impromptly praying that I wouldn't need glasses anymore. And I was there with my eyes closed and I thought, oh my goodness. I started praying back in my head. I was like, Lord, he means really well. <laughs> but I really like my glasses. And when I open my eyes, I want it to not be blurry because that means I still need my glasses. Uh, as you can see from my face, um, the Lord answered my prayers. <laughs> um, but I don't just wear glasses because I like wearing them or because it's a fashion opportunity, though it kind of is. Um, I wear them so that I can see. They reveal to me what's in front of me. In our passage, we saw how the Pharisees were blind to who Jesus is. They couldn't see who he is. Let's bear that in mind as we contrast the burden of the Pharisees with the passage just before at the end of Matthew 11. This is Matthew 11 from verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. These verses have uh, come in the context of an increasingly polarized response to who Jesus is. On the uh, one hand, we see the wise and understanding. And on the other, little children. And Jesus tells us that these things, that is the purpose and significance of his mission, has been revealed to little children and hidden from the wise and understanding. He prays to the Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, and thanks him for revealing himself to those who are needy, dependent, and humble. Just as I need my glasses to see, we need God to reveal himself to us so that we can see him. Or in the words of the Apostle Paul, we need the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened, for God to shine his light into our darkened hearts. And note the reason why the Father reveals himself. Jesus says, for such was his gracious will. Or your version might say, because he was pleased to do so. You know that God delights in revealing himself to people. He doesn't do it reluctantly. The book of Psalms tells us that whatever God pleases, he does. And he's pleased to reveal himself to you. Maybe you feel like every time you read your Bible, it goes in one ear and out the other ear. Or if you just study God a bit harder or listen to more podcasts on your commute, he would just reveal himself to you. Friends, do you know this in your heart? If you're a Christian here today, it's because God was pleased to reveal himself to you. And this is great news for us. There is no precondition required, no understanding or intelligence, but the free gift of God. And where is it found? It's found in the person of Jesus Christ. See what he says here. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And this word know kind of loses its strength here in our English translation. It's not just about forming an acquaintance with someone, but here it's used in the most fullest and intimate way. 
Jesus is saying that he knows the Father fully, and this is the relationship he calls us into. We come to the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. The New Testament tells us that if you're a Christian here today, you have been united with Christ, and you fully enter into this intimate relationship with the trying God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And this means that just as Jesus prays to the Father here, so can you this morning, knowing that you are adopted into the Son, that the Father sees you in Christ, that his words spoken over you are, this is my beloved Son, this is my beloved daughter, in whom I'm well pleased. And it can't be taken from you, because it's a gift given to you. What wonderful grace and abundant mercy shown to us that when we were lost and blind, he chose to come and reveal himself to us. And I know I need to hear it again this morning, that my heart will drift away from accepting that my salvation is an unconditional free gift given to me. I'll worry about how I perform in my work, my relationships, my devotion to God, and start believing the lie that he doesn't love me. Hear this this morning. God is pleased to reveal himself to you. It is his gracious will that you may know him fully and intimately in Christ. Now, a bit of a silly question for you. I wonder if you've ever carried something really, really heavy. Maybe like me, you don't have a car, and when you go to the supermarket, you sort of calculate what you can carry home. So if you ever come around our house, there's a reason it's all rice meals and not potatoes, because they're just too heavy to carry home. I remember when I was uh, 12 years old, I started learning the bassoon, and I borrowed an instrument from my school, which came in this rucksack-type bag. And despite only being a 10-minute walk to school, for the first year or so of my bassoon playing career, I had to get a lift on a Wednesday just because it was too heavy for me. Or maybe you did your Duke of Edinburgh award way back in the day, and you remember carrying that huge rucksack full of tents and sleeping bags. I did mine in the New Forest in the south coast near where I'm from, which is actually just full of easy cycle paths and free-roaming ponies. But um, the, the bag didn't get any lighter. We've seen how the additional rules and regulations given by the Pharisees were like a burden placed on the people of Israel. And we've seen how it is God's gracious will to reveal himself to us. Now let us see the open invitation to true rest. This is in chapter 11 from verse 28. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. <laughs> wow, I'm going to read it again. <laughs> Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What a wonderful invitation. What a beautiful passage. Are you feeling tired today? Weighed down by high expectations, pressure to perform well, or struggles with your own sinfulness? The invitation is to come. To come to the one who welcomes you in, regardless of who you are, where you come from, and what you've done. And his invitation is to receive rest, to take his easy yoke upon you. 
And this word yolk may or may not be familiar to you. It's not the yellow part of an egg. Um, a, a yolk is a beam of wood that was placed over two animals that's then attached to the thing that they are pulling. Maybe it's a cart or a piece of farming equipment. And in Israel at this time, the word yoke had become commonly associated with the Jewish law. It's supposed to make something easier to carry, but as we've already seen, the Pharisees added to the burden and the yoke of the law became hard to bear. But Jesus' invitation is to receive a new yoke, his yoke, the easy yoke free from heavy burden. Now you may ask the question, well, if he invites us into rest, why does he illustrate it with a tool used for work? Which I think is a good question. Um, what he's doing is he, he's bringing us back to what we see in Genesis chapter 2, the original seventh day rest. Man commissioned to work a garden that works with him. Free from the curse on the land in Genesis 3, Adam is free to work from rest. And the pastor Phil Moore writes that, paradoxically, we find rest in working with Jesus. He says that under Jesus' yoke, work is exhilarating instead of exhausting. Or another way of putting it, a podcast I listened to recently by the guys at the Bible Project said, this type of seventh-day rest work is like the work involved in arranging all of the chocolates you've been given as a gift. I love that. <laughs> it's a yoke of discipleship, of following the master as an apprentice, of learning from him. And then he goes on to describe himself what he's like. And the words may surprise you. Jesus says that he is gentle and lowly in heart. Your version might say gentle and humble. The one who invites you to come is gentle, he is kind, and he is loving. The one who invites you to come is lowly, he is humble, emptying himself that you may be filled. The pastor and author Dane Ortland writes that, the posture most natural to Jesus is not a pointed finger, but open arms. Can you hear his invitation this morning? The one to come and receive rest. Do you know his open arms towards you? At the beginning of my notes, every time I come to speak in front of people, I write at the top in full capital letters, take a deep breath. And this helps me to relax when I'm feeling nervous or anxious. But I think there's an opportunity here this morning to take a deep breath, to breathe out and know the rest that is given to us when we come to Jesus. It's a release of burden, a weight off our shoulders, a freedom from legalism. Thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in. Till I came hither, what a place is this? Must here be the beginning of my bliss. Must here the burden fall from off my back. Must here the strings that bound it to me crack. Blessed cross, blessed sepulcher, blessed rather be the man that was put to shame for me. Those are the words of the 17th century pastor, John Bunyan's fictional Christian, as the burden he carried fell from his back at the foot of the cross. A um, couple of months ago, I was at the the worship night here uh, in January. <laughs> and I, I just was so distracted for the first hour. I was singing, but I was thinking about who's over there, what's going on over here, what am I doing tomorrow? And then we had this moment of silence in the middle. And I prayed, I said, Jesus, I'm so distracted. And you know it. <laughs> and he was like, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. He said, I love it when you come. 
Then we sang the song, The Heart of Worship, with that line, I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you, Jesus. And I thought, wow. And then a couple of days later, I was asked to speak on these verses, and I thought, isn't God kind? He loves it when we come. And there's space to come this morning. I um, love this welcome from a pastor called Ray Ortland, whose work has been a great source of comfort to me through the preparation for this sermon. He says, To all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God even cares, to all who are weak and fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a saviour, this church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus. Come to me, all who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Maybe we could have the band up now. I'm not too sure um, what we're going to do now, but this invitation from Jesus stands, the invitation to come and receive rest in him. So just as these guys get ready, I'm just going to pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your invitation to come and receive rest. The ultimate fulfillment of that seventh day rest theme we see. And we accept your invitation. We come to you this morning knowing that as we draw near to you, you draw near to us as is the promise of your word. We pray, would you meet with us now? Would you transform our hearts? And would you help us on this journey of knowing that you are God alone, that we are not, that we are limited, and, and actually we find freedom when we embrace that. I pray, would you touch our hearts now? Would you change us for your glory? Amen.